a Podcast One production. William H. McRaven is a retired four-star admiral. He is part of American military history, having orchestrated some of the most famous missions in recent memory, including the capture of Saddam Hussein, the rescue of Captain Richard Phillips and the raid to kill Osama bin Laden. Admiral McRaven addresses a profoundly simple question. How do you change the world when so much lies beyond your control? Recalling incidents from his own life and service, he demonstrates that we all have opportunities to perform numberless small acts of encouragement, courage and compassion that can have repercussions far beyond our own lives. In this heartfelt conversation, William and I discuss the darkness of combat, his life lessons learnt from Navy SEAL training and why you must never cast judgement on the external makeup of a person. You don't measure somebody by their size. You measure them by what's in their heart, by their desire to succeed. And that's the only thing you can measure them by. Not the color of their skin, not their socioeconomic background, not their ethnicity, and I would offer not their gender, not their orientation. The only thing that matters is really kind of what's in here. I'm Sarah Grimberg. And this is a life of greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. William H. McRaven is the best-selling author of many books, including Sea Stories, My Life in Operations and Make Your Bed. He is truly one of the most inspiring people I have ever spoken to. In this conversation, you will learn why having hope and purpose in life can allow you to move through even the darkest days. Bill, you retired in 2014 as a four-star admiral in the US Navy and you oversaw the capture of some unbelievable things. The capture of Saddam Hussein, you oversaw the rescue of Captain Phillips and you also oversaw the killing of Osama bin Laden. You spent 37 years in the military. Firstly, what made you want to go into the military? Well, my father uh, was an Air Force officer. In fact, he was a World War II fighter pilot. And then uh, after World War II, he stayed in the Air Force uh, and had a a very long uh, 26-year career. Uh, So I grew up around, you know, what we call in the United States, uh, this greatest generation. Uh, You know, these, uh, you know, great Americans and Australians and and others that kind of participated in World War II. And of course, they were a a remarkable generation. I mean, they had this sense of, of toughness, but they also had a camaraderie, a love of country. And growing up in a military environment, uh, I saw the this relationship, this, this again, sense of camaraderie among my father and his, his fellow uh, fighter pilots. Uh, my mother loved being a military wife. And so from a very young age, uh, living on Air Force bases and really experiencing uh, the military, uh, I always knew it was the direction I wanted to head. Yes. And tell us, you spent a lot of time, obviously, in, in Navy SEAL training and you learned a heap of different skills when you when you did that. Can you take us through the skills that you learned that you feel could help people with their everyday life? Yeah, so let me give you a little background on, on Navy SEAL training. Uh, it takes place in Coronado, California, which is in the city of San Diego. Um, and it is six months long. It's broken down into three phases. Uh, The first phase is about 10 weeks long, and it is really the hardest of of all the phases. It's a selection phase. It's where the instructors are really trying to weed out those, you know, a week of mind and body. Uh, The second phase, while the the harassment and the physical training still continues, you learn how to dive, how to scuba dive, and you learn special uh, rigs that we use as Navy frogmen. And then the third phase of training, another 10 weeks long, is about land warfare. So you have to learn to shoot, move, and communicate. Remember the acronym SEAL, and it is an acronym, stands for sea, air, and land. So you've got to be good in the water, you have to be a good uh, skydiver, and then you have to be good on the land. So, you know, when I went through SEAL training in 1977, all of my instructors uh, were former Vietnam veterans, or they were Vietnam veterans. Uh, And and these guys were, they were pretty tough. Uh, And they wanted to make sure that everybody, you know, going through SEAL training 
was going to kind of meet a standard of toughness and a standard of teamwork that they expected uh, if you were going to be serving with them. But very early on in SEAL training, uh, and in fact, uh, the, the very first thing you did every morning in SEAL training was you had an inspection. And uh, the class I was in, we had 110 guys when we started. And the class I was in, we, we lived in a three-story barracks, and the officers lived on the, the third floor. And every morning, the instructors would come in, and, uh, and they would inspect your room initially just to make sure the room was clean. Then they'd do a uniform inspection. And, you know, you'd have to come to attention and they would, they would check your hat and they would, uh, they would make sure your uniform was perfectly starched, that your brass belt buckle was shining, that your shoes were spit shined. And then they would inspect your bed. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I'm not sure I get it. I mean, I, I, I come to Navy SEAL training to be this battle-hardened Navy SEAL, and now they've got me, you know, learning to make my bed every morning. Well, as, as the months went on and every, again, every morning you had to make your bed and every morning it was inspected, Finally, I got up the courage to ask one of the, these crusty old, uh, you know, senior chief petty officers, a Navy SEAL, why do we go to so much trouble to make our bed? And he said, well, there's a couple of reasons. He said, one, if you start your day with a task completed and you do it well, it kind of inspires you to do another task and another and another. And he says, the other thing is, it's about the little things in life. If you can't even make your bed to exacting standards, how can we ever trust you to lead a complex SEAL mission? Learn to do the little things right, and you'll learn to do the big things right. But later on in my career, the bed took on even a different meaning. And, and over the course of the next 30 years, I made my bed every day on ships, on submarines, on shore duty. But when the war uh, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan unfolded, I spent a lot of time in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and in Afghanistan, I lived in what we referred to as a bee hut. It was made by the Navy CBs, construction battalions. It was just a plywood room, basically. And I was a three-star admiral. I was, I was pretty senior, and I was living in a, in a plywood room. And the only thing in that room was a bed, a rack, as we say in the Navy. Uh, and every morning I would get up, I'd go do my physical training, I'd come back, and I would make that bed. Because I knew when I walked out that door, that plywood door, into this kind of combat zone, that life was going to be very, very challenging. Mm. Unfortunately, in combat, you know, young soldiers die. Civilians are inadvertently killed. Somebody is yelling at you about something. You know, the generals are yelling at you. The admirals are yelling at you. Presidents are yelling at you. Prime ministers are yelling at you. People get upset. And my days were long. Sometimes they were 20 hours long. Sometimes you'd go days. But when I came back, into that room, that bed was made. And as all the chaos and crisis kind of revolved around me, the bed was something I controlled. Mm. And I realized that that was also an important part of my life. It wasn't just starting your day right. It wasn't just understanding how important the little things were. Having the bed gave me some control of my life. And that was very important to me, uh, again, in a combat zone. And then, of course, there were a lot of other lessons from SEAL training. It's funny, isn't it? Because we don't have many knowns in life, like many certains. The most certain thing we have in life is the fact that it's uncertain. And, and the only certainty we have in life is that we will eventually die. So right. it makes so much sense to know that having that bed made did you, give you a sense of control when things were very much out of control. Exactly right. And, and it's not just... You know, it's not just about being in combat. Everybody, you know, every day has things that, that you know, tug at them, mm. that make things difficult for them, emotionally, physically. But when you get up every morning and you make your bed, it's not a hard thing to do. And, and it really does kind of start your day off well and give you some control of your life. Uh, and frankly, it, it will encourage you to go on and do other things as well. Can you tell us about when you were placed in the boat crew in Navy SEAL training? Yeah, so uh, in SEAL training, we have these things called inflatable boat smalls, IBSs. It's about an eight-foot-long rubber raft, and you, you carry this raft around with you everywhere you go. Uh, you carry it to, to breakfast, lunch, and dinner on your heads. You, there's seven guys that carry the raft, wow. uh, and it's you know, kind of teamwork. And uh, you carry it up and down the sand dunes. You kind of carry it everywhere, certainly in the first phase of training. And, and there were kind of two lessons about the raft that, uh, 
that really resonated with me. The first was the instructors very early on in training give you a very simple task. They tell you that we want you to take this rubber boat, paddle it out through the surf zone, paddle down and paddle in. Paddle out, paddle down, paddle in. Not very hard. Easy mission statement. And of course, the idea is that the guys that are on the front of the boat, there's rubber straps on the side. They kind of pull the bow of this little rubber boat into the surf. The number two guys make sure the boat doesn't waffle back and forth. The number three guys, they kind of push from behind. And then the officer or the senior enlisted guy, as soon as that boat gets in the water, you jump in, you throw your oar in the water, your paddle, and then you call the guys in. One's in, two's in, three's in. Now you have all seven men in the boat. And then you find out what teamwork is all about. Because if everybody doesn't dig just as hard, if everybody doesn't follow the stroke count of the coxswain, then that boat will not make it out through that surf. It will turn left or it'll turn right and you'll get unceremoniously dumped back onto the beach. But the other thing you learn very quickly is we are called the SEAL teams for a reason. Because you find out that I don't care if you are the biggest, the strongest, the fastest, the smartest SEAL in that little rubber boat, you can't paddle the boat by yourself. It mm. takes a team to do it. And as you go through life, you certainly find that, you know, again, you may be the biggest, strongest, fastest, smartest, but you really do need people. You need colleagues. You need friends. You need the goodwill of strangers to kind of help you make it through life. And so the little rubber boat was a, was a great teaching tool. The other lesson was when we built the boat cruise, when, when, you, when you started, uh, you had the tall guys and the little guys. I was in the tall guy boat crew. Your listeners can't see, but I'm, I'm six foot two. Uh, and then the little guys were about five, four, five, five. But you found out very quickly that, again, size didn't matter. These guys in the little boat crew, and they were from, you know, all parts of America. We had uh, an American Indian. We had uh, an African-American, uh, a Greek-American, a French-American, a Polish-American, and then a, a couple of tough kids from the Midwest. <laughs> and even though we big guys made good-natured fun of them, they outswam us, they outran us, they outpaddled us. Uh, they were just a remarkable group of guys. And you realize that you don't measure somebody by their size. You measure them by what's in their heart, mm. by their desire to succeed. And that's the only thing you can measure them by. You know, not, not the color of their skin, uh, not their socioeconomic background, uh, not their ethnicity. And I would offer not their gender, not their orientation. The only thing that matters is really kind of what's in here. You must have noticed a lot of interesting things spending so much of your life in the armed forces and what makes someone good at their job and what doesn't. What do you think those attributes are? Yeah, I, I think, you know, one thing that makes up for a lot of shortfalls is hard work. Mm. Uh, you know, I have seen, uh, again, great officers, great enlisted uh, men and women uh, that were incredibly talented and yet they were outpaced by the man or woman that decided that they were going to come into work early, they were going to work hard, and they were going to stay late to get the job done. And talent is a remarkable thing. And if you get people that are both talented and driven, uh, then that is the perfect combination. But, you know, if you're like me and you lack talent in certain areas, then sometimes you just have to make it up by hard work. So I think hard work is one thing. I think listening to uh, your seniors, the people that have been there for a while, those people that are experienced. Uh, it is important when you come into a new organization to find the old hands. They are old hands and have been around for a while for a reason. Mm. Doesn't mean they're always right. But if you're new to an organization or you're a new leader, you would be foolish not to go and listen to the men and women who've been there, get their advice, understand what's going on. So I would offer listening is important. The next thing is humility. Uh, if you think you are the smartest person in the room, you're probably wrong. Uh, again, this kind of goes back to the listening, but you have to be a little humble about things. Yes. Uh, you have to realize that, uh, that you know, you're not going to have all the answers. So find people that have answers. Be humble enough to know your shortcomings. And then it sounds like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth, but you also need a little swagger. Mm. And so the hard part about leadership is finding this balance between giving the men and women that work for you a sense of confidence that you can get the job done with their help, 
and not being, you know, so righteous or so pompous uh, that people don't want to follow you. That that balance of humility and swagger is hard to find, mm. but it's an important thing for any leader or anybody going into an organization. I totally agree. And I think the thing that you touched on is so true about humility. I think even the people that I've interviewed, you know, some of the smartest people, they're they they are they are so humble and i think that is what makes them so charismatic when people walk in with all this bravado and yeah. to be honest with you it's off putting absolutely it's not something that warms you towards someone and i know a lot of people do that when they're insecure and they have a lot of other things going on but it is it is that fine line of of humility but also showing people that you're in a position that you are able to lead or you are able to uh, give the pass them on information that will be unbelievable for them to use in their everyday life. No, you're exactly right. You talk about this concept in your book, Make Your Bed, called sugar cookies, which I found really <laughs> interesting and it is unbelievably bizarre. Can you take us through what you had to go through to be a sugar cookie? Yeah, so the, uh, when you go through SEAL training, as a young student, uh, the instructors who are, again, they're already Navy SEALs. And when I went through, they were all uh, combat veterans. But the instructors were like kings. I mean, whatever they told you to do, you had to do it. Uh, and if they didn't like, you know, the fact that, you know, you went to the University of Texas and they went to our rival at Oklahoma, or, you know, if you were from the East Coast and they were the West Coast or what it happened to be, or they just didn't like the looks of your face, they would tell you to hit it. That was a term, and you had to run fully clothed over the sand dunes, jump in the Pacific Ocean, come back, roll around in the sand. You throw sand everywhere, down your pants, down your shirt, and the effect is called a sugar cookie. But the thing that drove a lot of people crazy about the sugar cookie was the indiscriminate nature of it. You could have come in first on the run, and you would become a sugar cookie. You could have been first on the swim, and you would be a sugar cookie. You could have had the best test score on one of the written tests, and you still became a sugar cookie. And there was always a lesson in SEAL training, and this may have been one of the most important lessons. Life's not fair. Get over it. But there were a lot of people that said, wait a second, I came in first on the run. Somebody should pat me on the back. Somebody should tell me you know, how excellent I am. Somebody should show me some, uh, you know, some goodness. And that didn't happen a lot. And the instructors were trying to impress upon the students, look, there are going to be times in your life when you do everything right, when you work hard, when you're the first on an event, and you know what? You're still going to get kicked in the gut. You know, stop whining about it, get over it, and move on. And so the lesson of the sugar cookie is, you know, sooner or later in life, we're all going to be sugar cookies. You know, we're going to have destiny will deal us a bad hand, and we can, we can take it one of two ways. Mm -hmm. We can complain about it. We can say, oh me, oh my, life's been unfair to me. Or we can just accept the fact that life's not fair. you got to move on and try to get better. Bill, that's so profound because one thing that I have really, really come to be in touch with over the last few years is bad things happen to good people. It's, it's, it just happens. Yeah. And it's something we have to accept. So I think that concept of what you're speaking about with the sugar cookies makes so much sense. Well, and uh, I, I tell the story of a, of a very good friend of mine. Uh, he was a, a Navy lieutenant. He was a SEAL instructor when I was going through. Vietnam veteran, and his name was uh, Lieutenant Moki Martin. Moki, he was from Hawaii, Philip L., and his nickname was Moki. And again, he was a combat veteran from Vietnam, highly decorated, and he was one of my instructors. And every time Lieutenant Martin would see Ensign McRaven, He'd pick me out of a crowd and he'd say, McRaven, hit it. And I'd have to go run and jump in the water and get and become a sugar cookie. <laughs> Seemed like I couldn't hide anywhere. He would always find me. Well, interestingly enough, when I graduated from SEAL training, he and I both end up with the same SEAL team and we became very good friends. And in the early 80s, this was the beginning of the triathlon craze. And Moki Martin was a phenomenal athlete. Uh, and he was preparing for one of the early triathlons, but it was 1983, I think. And he was out one day and he was riding his bicycle uh, down a, a bicycle path that, that paralleled the Pacific Ocean between Coronado and a neighboring city. And he had a head-on bicycle collision. 
Well, the other guy gets up and kind of dusts himself off, and he's a little sore. And Moki Martin was paralyzed from the chest down and has been for the last 37 years. And I tell folks, never once, never once in those 37 years have I ever heard Moki Martin complain about his lot in life. Never once did he say, why me? And in fact, he went on to become an accomplished painter. He fathered another child. And today, he actually oversees the UDT, the Underwater Demolition Team SEAL Triathlon that we run every year. I saw him last year when I was out in San Diego. He is as effervescent and as positive as always. Moki Martin understood the lesson of the sugar cookie. Hey, sometimes life's not fair and you just have to push through it and move on. You, Bill, were diagnosed with cancer. And I mean, how, how did you cope with that? Yeah, I would tell you not well. <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is, you know, when you get a diagnosis of cancer, uh, it scares you. Yeah. And I was over in Afghanistan at the time and I was having a video teleconference much like this with my doctor. I had done a bone marrow biopsy, uh, you know, a month or so earlier when I was back in the States. And so the doctor called me up and on a video uh, told me that I had chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Now, the good news is that's a manageable cancer, but I didn't really know that at the time. And the doctor also told me, look, uh, you're probably going to have to come back to the United States Uh, You're going to have to probably start chemotherapy. There's some other operations you might have to go through. So you get this diagnosis, and I'm thinking to myself, well, my career is over. Uh, You know, I don't know what this disease is, but the big C, cancer word, scares you. Um, I I will tell you, the first couple days were really challenging. Uh, When I got back to the United States uh, and I told my wife about the situation, you know, like every good partner, she said, hey, we're going to work through this. And she actually kind of had to lead me through the tough times and kind of back to the lesson of the boat crew. You know, I I thought I was the biggest, strongest, uh, you know, smartest seal around. But when you get a diagnosis of cancer, uh, it can it can drop you to your knees. So she found uh, a doctor, the world's best uh, oncologist in the area of chronic lymphocytic leukemia. He is an Australian, by the way. Ah. Uh, Yep. Michael Keating. Dr. Michael Keating, and uh, he came to the United States many years ago, but still has a heavy Australian accent. <laughs> and uh, at a, at a, you know, when, I, when I first went to see him, uh, I love to tell the story because uh, it is a story about hope. Mm. But I was, you know, I was pretty scared. My wife and I, we go to MD Anderson. It's a, a cancer clinic in the United States in Houston where Dr. Keating works. And I, I go into the office, and we're sitting down in the office, and we're waiting for the doctor to come. And of course, I'm expecting, you know, terrible news. And Dr. Keating, uh, the door kind of flies open and in walks this kind of ruddy-faced Australian. And he says, hey, mate, you know, give me a hug. Well, I'm not really a hugger. Uh, <laughs> but I said, ah, what the hell? You know, so I gave him a big hug. And he looks at me and he goes, ah, don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. And I said, I'm sorry, what? And my wife says, I'm sorry, what do you mean? He says, he's going to be fine. He said, explain to me what fine means. But before I could do that, my wife says, well, well um, you know, should he start eating more fruits and vegetables? And Dr. Keating looks at me and he says, no, I don't think so. And he says, well, you know, should he start exercising more? Keating looks at me and says, no, he looks to be in pretty good shape. And then finally she says, well, should he cut back on his alcohol? And Dr. Keating stands up from his chair, gives that kind of, uh, you know, feigned look and goes, oh, God, no. And, uh, and it was just this element of humor and this sense that there was hope out there. Mm-hmm. Now, the reality of the matter is, uh, you know, several years later, I had to go through some cancer treatment. But Dr. Keating gave me hope at a time when I needed hope. And so, you know, part of the story in the book, Make Your Bed, is about hope. Mm. It is about recognizing that we all have the opportunity to give someone else hope. Uh, And when you have an opportunity to pass that on, you know, don't ever miss that opportunity because you can change a lot of lives by giving somebody hope. It's so true. I mean, God, the situations you must have been in, and there must have been so many frightened people and you being in charge, like the number one man, even when you were scared... How did you find the courage to be able to give hope to the people that you were in charge of? Well, in in combat missions, it was a little easier because, again, I was the old hand. I was the experienced guy. 
you know, I had been in the military, you know, you know, depending upon what time, you know, 30 some odd years. And I had done thousands of missions, either commanding them, going on them, being uh, the guy that oversaw them something. Uh, so, you know, your job as a commander in a combat situation or any stressful situation, whether you're the CEO of a, of a corporation or whether you're you know, the president of a nonprofit, whatever you happen to be doing, you have to give the men and women that work for you a sense of confidence. You give them confidence by, you know, having a plan, you know, a solid plan, a plan that you communicate to the rank and file, uh, a plan that is based on, you know, uh, you know, kind of thoughtful, methodical work. You give them the right tools to do the job. You give them the latitude to do the job. Uh, you hold people accountable when they don't do the job. And so, you know, your men and women will look up to you and respect you if they know that you're going to work hard, that you've got a plan, that you're going to listen to the experts, and that you're going to do the best you can to support them. Um, that for me was, you know, was baked into me from uh, the first time I came into the SEAL teams. It was an understanding of what leaders are expected to do. Yes. You have another concept in the book that I love. It's called swimming with sharks. Can you tell us about that? So in the third phase of SEAL training, as I said, there are three separate phases. In the third phase, and actually for me in the last three weeks of training, so now you've gone through you know, months and months of training. You're in the last three weeks. We had gone from 110 uh, men to start with. We're now down to 33 men. And uh, we go out to a, an island called San Clemente Island. It's about 80 miles off the coast of San Diego. It is a military-owned island. And the first night we get in there, they have what they call the night swim. So they take all the, the trainees, the students, and they take you about three or four miles off the island. They just dump you in the ocean. They tell you to swim back ashore. But before they do this, uh, they, the instructors give you this safety brief, in air quotes, safety brief. Uh, so what they do is they flash these pictures of sharks uh, up on the screen. And again, this is a little bit of the, the harassment and the, uh, you know, create as much tension for the students. But they show you pictures of Mako sharks and the hammerhead sharks. And then they're quick to tell you that off San Clemente Island is the breeding ground for the great white shark. And then they tell you, but if you're out there in the middle of the Pacific Ocean at night and you see a shark coming, and interestingly enough in the Pacific Ocean, as I'm sure it is in most, when, an, when a, you know, a shark or a sea lion is moving through the water, the thermal conversion in the Pacific Ocean at night, you see this green phosphorescent trail. So the sea lions move very erratically as they are coming at you. So you can see a sea lion from a long ways off. But when the sharks come, you know, they are very, uh, you know, again, kind of methodical in their approach. And they will circle you and they will come very slowly. And that circle will get smaller and smaller. And the instructors tell you, don't try to run away from the shark. You're not going to outswim the shark. So you get back to back with your swim buddy. And when that circle gets small, that shark will kind of come at you. And the instructor said, just haul back and punch him in the snout. <laughs> and of course, you're like, yeah, that doesn't sound like a real good idea. Um, but of course, it actually is. You know, folks that, that study sharks will tell you that's a very sensitive part mm. of, their, uh, of their body. But, it, but again, once it, it's really more about the lesson. And the lesson here is that, you know, there are sharks everywhere you go in life. There are sharks in the classroom. There are sharks in the boardroom. Uh, there are sharks everywhere. You know, there are bullies places. And, you know, sometimes you just can't run from the bullies. Sometimes you have to stand your ground and metaphorically punch them in the snout. And we found that when you do that to bullies, you know, they generally tend to kind of run away. So the lesson I think of the, of the night swim, at least for me was, yeah, there are sharks in the world. Um, and and it, it doesn't do you any good to run, uh, run from them. Uh, you just got to kind of stand your ground. You must have found that a lot during your time in combat. Well, you know, there were certainly uh, a lot of bad people out there. Uh, fortunately, I was fortunate to have some remarkable men and women that worked for me. Um, and so the, the bullies that were out there, you know, we did the very best we could to, uh, to handle them as professionally as we could. And you then finished all of your SEAL training with a thing called Hell Week, which was eight hours in the cold. Can you take us through what they made you do for that? 
Yeah, so Hell Week uh, is the area where you, you tend to lose most of the students. So when I went through, Hell Week was six days of no sleep and constantly being kept cold, wet, and miserable. So you would start Sunday evening as soon as the sun went down. Uh, you would have what they call breakout. And in breakout, the instructors would come up. They would throw into your room. You were supposed to be sleeping. So I don't know, maybe it was 10 o'clock at night. I forget. But they would throw into your room these grenade simulators, giant firecrackers. They would open up with automatic weapons fire, blank fire, smoke grenades. So there is this, this chaos that starts. And of course, the instructors have bullhorns and they're yelling and screaming at you. And you rush out from the barracks down to the, uh, what we refer to as the grinder. It's an asphalt uh, you know, area where we would all muster, where we would come together. And then they just start harassing you. And you run to the ocean and you get wet and it's cold. The water of the Pacific Ocean is always cold. You come back and, and this starts what will be another six days of this harassment. So for six days, you are running, swimming, paddling your boat. Now, you do get to eat four times a day because they know they have to keep you full of food. Uh, but, you know, push-ups, sit-ups, uh, you know, again, long swims, long hikes, all that sort of stuff. And you really get, you know, just uh, kind of uh, worn down. Your hands get so uh, swollen because you don't think about it every day. But when you sleep, of course, the, your hands get to relax and your feet get to relax. But during Hell Week, your hands get so swollen, you can barely grab things. Your feet get so swollen that they're kind of, you know, stuck in your boots. And sometimes at the end of Hell Week, guys have to cut their boots off. And, and about day four, people start to hallucinate because they've been up for three or four days. But you're referring to the mud flats. So on, so we started on Sunday, and I think it was on Wednesday. My class uh, paddles down to the mud flats, and the mud flats were an area in South San Diego where the water from Tijuana, Mexico, and the water from San Diego merged and created this muddy slough. And uh, you know, it was probably about a I don't know thirty or forty foot patch, a square patch of mud. And in the deepest part of the mud, it was probably three feet or so. So if you were sitting down, you were literally up to your neck in mud. And, uh, and they would have, uh, you know, when we get down there, they had, you know, mud relays and mud fights and mud wrestling. And, and of course, the mud is cold and it grabs you uh, and it's tiring. And, you know, and it is just a miserable day for you. But at one point in time, uh, my class had, you know, committed some egregious violation of the rules, whatever the rules were the instructors made up. And so they, they threw us all in the mud and there were about 55 of us in the mud. And, uh, and I remember one of the instructors who was on the dry side coming up to us as we're in the mud. And of course we are covered in mud, we are shaking, we're freezing from the cold, the wind is coming off the ocean. And he, and he says, uh, very kind of contritely, he says, Hey guys, you know, I know this is this has been a hard day for you. You know, you really look miserable there in the mud. I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to let all of you guys come out of the mud. We got a nice fire we built over here. You can all come out of the mud, kind of get warm by the fire. I think we've got some coffee over there. You can have a cup of coffee. You can all come out of the mud if only five of you quit. And so this is what the instructors love to do. They love to kind of pit the class against each other. You can all get warm and cozy, but five of you have to quit first. And so, I mean, the kid next to me, I remember he was a big kid. We had all locked arms for solidarity in the mud and, and he's decided he is tired of trying to be a Navy SEAL. So he starts to get out of the mud and walk for the dry ground. And there were a couple other kids in the front row that were, hey, they, they were finished. And then all of a sudden at the far end of the row, one young uh, sailor started singing. And I remember the instructor went over to him and started yelling at him, said, hey, stop that singing. And before long, another guy was singing. And now the other instructors were out and they were screaming at the class, stop singing. And then they brought out bullhorns and now the whole class started singing. And the kids who were getting ready to quit kind of fell back in line. We locked arms again and everybody made it through, hell, uh, made it through that night of hell week. And it really was about hope. It was about this recognition that if one guy if just one guy could start singing when he was literally up to his neck in mud, then maybe we could hold on. Maybe we could make it through the night if one guy could, uh, could, could again, have this sort of uh, this courage and this commitment, we could, we could all make it. And so it was a powerful lesson about hope, one that I never forgot. 
How many people started when you did SEAL training and that were then left there at the end when you completed it? Yeah, so the attrition rate, as we say, is generally about 75%. So we started with 110 guys and we ended with 33. And that was actually a large class. Normally the classes, you know, start with uh, nowadays, I don't know, it's between 100 and 150. And, uh, and they end with maybe, you know, 20 or 30 guys, maybe. Did you enjoy your time in SEAL training? <laughs> well, I don't know that you enjoy it. It's enjoyable to look back on yes. it. Yes. Uh, but it is like any challenge. Yeah. You know, there are times when, you know, in the middle of the day, when you're able to hold on and complete, you know, the obstacle course or the swim, and you say, I made it through that. Yeah, that, there is, you get some real satisfaction from mm. doing that. The hard part is, you know, that 15 minutes later, you got another challenge in front of you. So we talk about the fact that, you know, you have to take things one evolution at a time, one event at a time. So if you wake up in the morning and you say, oh my gosh, I'm going to have two hours of calisthenics and that's going to be followed by a four mile soft sand run. And that's going to be followed by a three mile open ocean swim. And that's going to be followed by an obstacle course. If you look at it that way, and then you say, and oh, by the way, that's not one week, that's six months of, of uh, pain, you're probably not going to make it. So you have to kind of look at one event and you say, okay, I've got a, a two hours of calisthenics to do, I just got to get through that. And then I'll worry about the next event. And then I just got to get through that. And then I'll worry about the next event. And then when you do that, before long, six months goes by and you're, you're finished. But there's some kids that their event horizon gets so long, mm. they worry about the next event, the next day, the next week, the next month, will they make it? And those uh, those students most of the time don't make it. Well, that's like anything in life really, isn't it? I suppose it teaches you to be in the present moment, which is an unbelievable skill that we're all trying for. And anxiety comes from being in the future and a lot of depression comes from from experiences in the past. So this Navy SEAL training, I feel like they've got it all covered. <laughs> Well, I don't know if they have it all covered, but I tell folks, you know, it, it, to, to your point, sir, it is about life. Yeah. I mean, it, it's life kind of crammed into six months. Um, and, and so the lessons that I learned in SEAL training were really life lessons. I mean, they were lessons about, you know, teamwork, about leadership, about, you know, understanding risk, about not quitting, uh, about giving people hope, about, you know, facing down the bullies. Um so it, it is the nature, I think, of any military training, and I'm sure any of the, the soldiers and the sailors uh, in, in the Australian military would tell you the same thing. Mm. When you go through basic training, you learn a lot about yourself, you learn a lot about other people, and that helps you apply that later on in, in the civilian world. Going into your time in combat, as as I touched on earlier, you were part of some some unbelievable missions. Can you take us through what it was like when you captured Saddam Hussein? Yeah, so uh, I got to Iraq in October of two thousand and three. So the the U.S. invasion, U.S. led invasion, was in March of two thousand and three. So I got to Iraq in October of 2003, and the, the special operations forces I was with, uh, we were responsible for you know, capturing uh, or eliminating the, the, uh, what we call the top 50, the, the deck of 50. There had been some enterprising young public uh, affairs officer who had taken a deck of cards, and all of the, the Bathists and the bad guys had been given a particular card. And of course, Saddam Hussein was the the ace of spades, the highest card in the deck. So when I got there, we were trying to, you know, find and, and capture Saddam Hussein. But, uh, you know, he's pretty crafty. Uh, he, he did not uh, associate with people, although we had a lot of leads on him. Most of those leads ended up being dead ends. And then finally, uh, in December, again, I, I want to be, be very clear, the Army Special Operations guys that worked for me, they're the ones that, you know, were the real kind of heroes of this story. Uh, you know, I was the senior leader, but these were the guys on the ground hunting him, uh, you know, vigorously, getting the intelligence, finding the leads, uh, and then continuing to kind of track those leads. And then finally, 
uh, in December, uh, you know, out in Tikrit, uh, which is you know, north of Baghdad, uh, that we had a lead. We followed that lead, and, and sure enough, there in the spider hole, uh, they was Saddam Hussein. So they pulled him out of the spider hole. They brought him back to me, and uh, we had a base uh, there at uh, Baghdad International Airport. I had a small area uh, to hold him. And, um, and I tell folks it was, uh, it was interesting to watch the transformation of Saddam Hussein. On the first day when he was captured, we brought him back. Uh, we, we got him cleaned up and shaved so that, you know, the Iraqi people could see that because he had this big giant beard, although candidly it was a little hide to, hard to hide the face of Saddam Hussein. Um, but, uh, but we cleaned him up. We got him pictures taken. And you see the kind of the iconic pictures in Newsweek and Time. Um, and then that next day, uh, a number of the you know, senior Iraqi leaders and the American leaders came to visit him. And as far as he was concerned, he was still Saddam Hussein, the president of Iraq. And he was very pompous. And he was very arrogant. Uh, and after that meeting, I told uh, Ambassador Bremer, who was the, the senior American in, in country at the time, I said, sir, that's it. Uh, I do not want anybody else coming to visit Saddam Hussein. So uh, we kept Saddam in a you know, very you know, austere but nice room. And I had a, a doctor in the room with him 24 hours a day. And I had a guard with him. And, and we treated him exceedingly well. But an interesting thing happened. As the days went on, and he no longer had his palaces, and he no longer had his generals, and he no longer had his handmaidens, he really just became a pathetic old man. And it really is kind of back to this idea of the bullies. Um, you know, the, the bullies really kind of, you know, when, when they are really truly evil people like Saddam was, when they have no strength of character, uh, they collapse pretty quickly. Mm. I always compare that to somebody like Nelson Mandela, who spent almost 30 years incarcerated. Mm. And Mandela, because he had this great strength of character, uh, this great sense of integrity, he came out of that incarceration probably as strong as he went in, yeah. maybe stronger. But Saddam Hussein, after about 10 days, said he was just a pathetic old man. Wow. What would you say there's been a lot of controversy or talk that the, the Gulf War should never have occurred and that no weapons of mass destruction were ever found? You were there. What do you say on that? Yeah, I say, as strange as it sounds, it's too early to tell. Uh, and, the, and the reason I say that is, um, you know, the, the the path of history sometimes takes unusual turns. Yes, there was no weapons of mass destruction there, uh, but Saddam Hussein is gone. Yes. That is a good thing. You know, when you were there in Iraq and you see the terror that Saddam uh, really imposed upon his people, certainly imposed upon the Kurds uh, and uh, and the Sunni and the, the Shias that were there. I mean, it was a pretty bad situation. Now, having said that, um, you know, history will determine whether or not it was the right thing for us to go in, even if there weren't weapons of mass destruction. But I don't think we'll know until, I don't know, 50 years from now. In 50 years from now, if Iraq is turned into a, for lack of a better term, and it's probably not a good term, a Western-style democracy where the Iraqi people have some say in their governance— then maybe it will have been a good thing. Mm. Again, I'm not I'm not prepared to say that yet. Um, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, the the military, you know, we do what our uh, political masters ask us to do. We try to do it to the best of our ability. I saw incredibly courageous and heroic men and women every single day. We had, you know, after the fall of Iraq, of course, we had Iraqi soldiers that were with us as well. Mm. Now fighting the insurgents, fighting the terrorists like Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And I saw equally courageous, equally uh, patriotic Iraqis trying to make a better country for themselves. Mm. So when you, when you had a chance to see the average Iraqi realizing that there was a future out there now, not a future under Saddam Hussein, but a future that maybe they, the Iraqi people controlled, uh, you know, it was pretty inspiring at times. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just not prepared to say at this point. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, we went in there. There were no no weapons of mass destruction. That was clearly a mistake. Um, but as far as how history will judge it, I think that remains to be seen. 
You were also part of the team that oversaw the assassination of Osama bin Laden. And there were those famous photos of Biden and Obama and Clinton all watching everything unfold. Can you take us through how that mission all came about and how you knew exactly what you were going to do? Yeah, uh, I'll, I will start off by correcting one thing, only yeah. because it is uh, the term of art is, is a little different. Uh, you talked about the assassination of bin Laden. It was not, so there are a lot of people that say, was this a kill-only mission? And the answer is no, it was not. Uh, the rules of engagement and the law of armed conflict were very clear. If the SEALs had gone in there and bin Laden had his hands completely raised up and it was clear he was not wearing a suicide vest and he was giving himself up, we were absolutely obligated, and the full intent was we were going to capture him. We had a plan to capture him. However, what I told the guys was if for any you know millimeter of a say, any, any moment, you think he is a risk, you have to do what you think is right to protect yourself yes. and, the, and the men around you. And they did. Uh, and I can get to that in a bit. But as far as the, uh, the mission unfolded, uh, I was made aware of the fact that the CIA had a lead on bin Laden in December of 2010. I was out in Afghanistan at the time. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Mike Mullen, came to visit me and said, look, the CIA thinks they have a lead on bin Laden. Um, they may call you to come back and uh, talk to them about, you know, the, uh, you know, the uh, a potential raid or looking at the intelligence. I said, okay. So about three weeks later, uh, I got a call and I went from Afghanistan. I flew back to Washington, D.C., went over to CIA headquarters, and I met with the deputy director of CIA, Michael Morell. And Morell showed me pictures of the compounds uh, that, that they believed at the time that bin Laden was living in, although they certainly weren't certain by any stretch of the imagination. And you may have seen pictures of it. It's a trapezoid-shaped compound, very high walls, 12-foot high walls in one area, 18-foot high walls in the other, had a three-story building in the middle and a couple of other buildings. And Morell said, look, if your special operations soldiers had to take down this building, how would you do it? I said, look, it's what we do every night. Uh, we were doing about uh, 20 to 25 missions a night in Iraq, and we were doing about 10 to 12 missions a night in Afghanistan. And your average mission in Afghanistan, which more closely approximated the, the Abbottabad raid, was you'd put, you know, 40 or 50, uh, you know, Army Special Operations guys and Army Rangers or SEALs and Army Rangers on a couple of helicopters. They would fly from a forward operating base. Uh, they would land, uh, you know, 15 kilometers or so from the target. They would then get off the helicopters. They would foot patrol through bad guy country, surround the compound. Uh, Rangers would set up blocking positions so nobody could reinforce the compounds. Snipers would get up on the walls, and we would basically seal off the compound. And believe it or not, we would do what was called a call-out. So we'd get out a bullhorn, and once the compound was locked down, we would encourage the bad guy, whoever that was, to come out with their hands up sort of thing. Now, it doesn't always work. Uh, a lot of times they decided to fight. And then things would get a little sporty and we'd go from there. And then you get the bad guy, you put him on a helicopter and you come home. So that's what the force, not a single unit, but all the, the men and women that worked for me, that's what they were doing 10 to 12 times a night in Afghanistan. So over the course of the next uh, you know, four months, uh, I met with uh, the president. Uh, and as you pointed out, it was President Obama, Vice President Biden, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, Secretary of Defense Bob Gates, uh, Admiral Mike Mullen, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, Jim Clapper, who was the director of national intelligence, John Brennan, who was working in the White House at the time, Leon Panetta was the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. So I met about uh, you know, six times with the president over the course of the next several months. Um, and every time we met, the first question the president asked of the CIA director was, do we know whether or not it has been Laden? And, and, and Director Panetta certainly thought it was bin Laden, and he certainly leaned towards uh, telling the president it was bin Laden, but he had to admit that there was a, another you know, part of the analytical team that didn't think it was bin Laden. Um, and so we were always in this kind of 50-50, is it bin Laden or not? And so finally in late April, um, I had to I had to head to Afghanistan, and the president had made the decision had not made the decision yet, but he had asked the director of the National Counterterrorism Center in the United States to review CIA's intelligence and to give them a sense of whether he thought it was bin Laden or not. 
And I remember at that last meeting, um, he turned to the director, a guy named Mike Leiter, and he said, well, Mike, what do you think? And Leiter said, well, Mr. President, we've, we've reviewed the CIA's intelligence, and we think the chance that it's bin Laden is anywhere between 60% and 40%. And when he said 40%, I thought, well, this mission's over. I mean, who in the world is going to authorize a bunch of Navy SEALs to fly 162 miles into Pakistan, into a major compound in a built-up uh, suburban area that was three miles from their West Point, three miles from a major infantry battalion, about a mile from a police station. I told the president, I said, sorry, I need to head to Afghanistan. If you make the decision to go, we'll be ready to go. If you decide not to go, plenty of bad guys in Afghanistan, and I'll just get back to work. So I flew to Afghanistan that night, and on Friday, uh, the director of Central Intelligence called me and said, hey, the president has made the decision to go. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, that is a bold decision. And I've told folks in America, look, irrespective of what side of the political aisle you're on, that will go down as one of the, the boldest decisions by a president in, in modern history, mm. because we didn't know whether bin Laden was there. Well, the next day, the president calls me in Afghanistan, wishes, uh, wishes me luck, um, and recognizes that, you know, this is a 50-50 shot. But the president was taking, you know, a great deal of, of political risk, if you will, uh, reputational risk uh, for the mission. I was very confident in my guys. Uh, tactically, uh, this was a challenging mission, but it wasn't the hardest mission these guys had been on. They were all combat veterans, all handpicked. Um, it was just, it was a long flight into Pakistan, 162 miles. Uh, we had to avoid Pakistani radars and integrated air defenses. Uh, of course, the guys got there, they got on the ground, and within about 15 to 18 minutes, I received the call. I was in Afghanistan uh, commanding the mission, uh, you know, from a distance. And I got the call from the ground force commander, and he said, you know, for God and country, Geronimo, Geronimo, yeah. Geronimo. And that was the code word for bin Laden. But it took us another, you know, uh, half an hour or so because we found intelligence on the site. Um, and so the SEALs had to police up all the intelligence. They got hard drives and, and uh, a lot of paper. Uh, but finally, in about 45 minutes, I was getting a little anxious because the Pakistanis were starting to figure out something was going on. And about 48 minutes into the mission, we got everybody back on the helicopters. And an uh, hour and a half later, they were back home, back in Afghanistan. That's unbelievable. What did Obama and his group say to you after that? Well, um, initially, uh, President Obama was not on the video with me. I was videoing with uh, Leon Panetta, the director of CIA. I was actually in a very small room. I had I'd had my team construct what really didn't amount to much but a large closet uh, because I knew I had to kind of have uh, you know some quiet and concentrate and be able to talk to Director Panetta without my small team. I had about 15 people that were just right outside the door where it was my tactical operations center. So they were watching and I was able to watch everything that was unfolding. But they, of course, had to make calls and do things and I needed to have a little bit more quiet. But at one point in time, uh, the president and his team, uh, you know, get up on the video. So now I'm looking at the president. And, um, and the president, uh, you know, it was before the SEALs had actually gotten back across the border, but they were just about back across. And the president said, uh, you know, well, Bill, do you know whether or not it's bin Laden yet? And I said, sir, I, I don't know. I need to go see the remains. I need to personally identify him. And then I'll, I'll come back and let you know. So the airfield was just a few minutes uh, you know, from my tactical operations center. So I got in a vehicle, drove over there, right about time the SEALs were landing in the helicopter. Uh, they pulled the body bag off, brought it into the hangar. You know, I unzipped the body bag, uh, and without getting too graphic, he didn't look too good. He had a couple of rounds in his head, um, but it was you know, uh, unmistakably him. Beard was a little bit shorter, um, but uh, you know, it was uh, it was quick. We also had photographs that we could match up and all that. And then later we did uh, a complete forensics on him. So we had fingerprints and uh, and DNA and all that stuff. But I went back, uh, you know, a few minutes later to uh, to talk to the president and was able to tell him that, you know, while I while I wasn't a hundred percent certain because I needed DNA, which of course we later got and confirmed. I said, I, yeah, I said I, I'm about ninety eight percent certain that it's him. And then. 
you know, a few hours later, the president made the announcement. Wow. You obviously have seen and, and, and gone through so much. Is there any times that you were so unbelievably frightened? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not, and, and this, I don't want this to come across long, wrong. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, fear a lot of times comes from inexperience. Mm. You know, the first time you do something, you don't know what it's going to be like. And, and so you're, you know, you have this trepidation. Well, fortunately for me, um, the things that a lot of people considered frightening, jumping out of airplanes, locking out of submarines, I did when I was very young and I had this sense of adventure and, and it was, uh, and you know, when you're 21, 22, you know, in your 20s, uh, you know, a young man, you're looking for adventure. These were the sort of things that, that I love to do. And, and so uh, as my 30 plus years went on, you know, I did those time and time and time again. And then all of a sudden, you know, you find yourself in combat. And I was going out, even as a senior officer, I would go out, you know, once every couple of weeks on a mission with the guys just to kind of share the hardships with them. And so once again, you know, the first time you go out, yeah, there's a little trepidation. Um, but then you understand that you have well-trained men. Uh, they know their job. They know their business. You know what to do in a situation like that. So I, I can honestly say, you know, I, I can't recall a time in my career where I was scared to the point where, you know, you, you're, you're afraid to, you know, to make the next move. Uh, I will tell you, I was scared when I got the diagnosis of cancer. Um, I was scared when my children got sick. Um, you know, these are the sort of things that frightened me more than my time, you know, doing, you know, what appeared to be, you know, daring things to the average person, but were fairly routine for those of us that spent a lifetime doing it. Being in combat, you obviously experience a lot of loss, a lot of death yep. of people you're so unbelievably close to, children. How do you deal with that at nighttime when it's dark, yep. when it's silent? Even now, yep. you see things that most of us will never see. Yeah, uh, it's not easy. Uh, you know, it's never easy. And you're right. I lost a lot of guys in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, you do a lot of uh, memorial services. Uh, and and it is tough. And, and you're right. It is not, you know, at the time you have to do it. Uh, as a leader, you realize that you've got to be strong for the men who have really accrued this loss. Uh, you know, for the young Rangers that have lost, uh, you know, one of their fellow soldiers or the Army Special Operations guys and the SEALs or the helicopter pilots, uh, they need their leader to be strong. And so you do that. And they need their leader to be you know, articulate when it comes time for the memorial services. But it is those times when you go back into that hut, into that room at night, and you think about these losses, that it is difficult. And I think all of us that have done it, you build these kind of emotional barricades around you. Uh, you, you make sure that you steal yourself for these losses. And, and frankly, my time, uh, you know, as a senior leader, certainly in combat, those barriers, those barricades worked very well for me. It has been harder since I retired. Mm. And now every day I don't have to have those em emotional barriers up. And I've told people before, you know, uh, it is very challenging, very difficult for me when I am talking in public and I have to talk about the soldiers that I've lost. Uh, I get very emotional. Uh, and, and frankly, um, at first uh, it was embarrassing. Uh, it was hard to get through it. Um, but I've gotten to the point where I realize that this is just, you know, part of dealing with the pain and the loss. Um, and, uh, and I guess when you get to the point where you're no longer emotional about the loss of a fellow soldier, that's probably worse. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it's never easy. Um, but, uh, but in combat, I would offer that, you know, when you lose men, uh, you have to be prepared to make the next tough decision. Uh, the men and women that work for you, they need somebody that will be able to compartmentalize that loss because if you're afraid to make the next tough decision, then more lives are going to be lost. Mm. So you've got to you've got to kind of compartmentalize that a little bit, look at the next challenge, make the best decision you can for the welfare of your men and women to get the mission done, uh, and then move on to the next one. 
but it's not easy. And I wouldn't kid you and tell you that it is. Oh, there's such wise words. What's the best advice that you've ever been given? <laughs> well, um, the best advice was marry that woman. Um, I, I've been married for over 42 years now. Uh, when I look back on my life, uh, the single best decision I ever made was to was to marry the woman that I've been married to now for 42 years because uh, you know she has helped me through the tough times. Uh, I contend she is a heck of a lot stronger than I am. Um, and you know, every, we all need somebody that you know when we fail, when we falter, when we fall down, can pick us up, dust us off, and tell us things are going to be okay, point us in the right direction, and, and keep us moving forward. Um, you know, if you think I was able to get to where I am by myself, uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, you know, from the time I met her to the time of where I am today, nothing would have happened without her. So the best advice I ever got was make sure you marry that woman. That's beautiful. What's the lesson that's taken you the longest to learn? <laughs> that's a long list, I guess. Sometimes I find myself learning the same lessons over and over again. Um, you know, I talked early on about this balance between humility and swagger. You know, sometimes uh, yeah, I've had a little too much swagger and, and the swagger has not been balanced with humility and that has caused me to make bad decisions. Conversely, sometimes I've been too humble and not confident enough to step into a situation where the, the people that work for me needed that confidence. So the lesson is always finding the right balance, knowing when to have the swagger and knowing when to be humble um, and realizing that, frankly, you always need to be humble, even if you are, you know, uh, espousing and showing the swagger. Um, but, but finding that balance, uh, that's, that's a lesson that I have to relearn every day. What's your greatest hope for society today? Yeah, I think it's the hope that, that I've always had. I mean, this... Uh, you know, particularly as I, as here in the United States, as you know, things have been very, very contentious over the last uh, four years. Um, but but I, I, have, I always have hope. And I tell folks, uh, I am probably the biggest fan of the millennials and the Gen Z that you'll ever meet. And I don't know how they're portrayed in Australia, but in the United States, there is this narrative out there that the millennials, you know, they are these entitled, these pampered, these little snowflake kids uh, that, that wouldn't make it in the real world. And I'm quick to point out, well, if you think that, then you've never seen them in a firefight in Afghanistan, or you've never seen them trying to make a better life for themselves going to one of the schools in Texas that I had an opportunity to lead. Um, I have great faith and confidence in this young generation. Um, they're not like my generation. I mean, they, they are different in ways that in, in many ways are better. They really value their friendships. Um, you know, they, they're prepared to speak out when they see something that isn't right. Mm. Uh, they mobilize in a way that I think is important. Again, I don't agree all the time with their politics, uh, but, I, but I admire them for the fact that they will figure out a way to have their voices heard. And I think that is incredibly important in today's world. Um, you know, if we get to the point where we are silencing people, uh, then I think that is the worst thing that can happen. We need to hear all the voices. We need to make the best decisions we can and, uh, and, and come together where we can. I, I think the, the thing that frustrates me the most is when two sides can't sit down and listen to each other. Two sides can't respect that there are different opinions. You know, if you can't have different opinions and do so in a, in a thoughtful, kind of polite, respectful manner, then you're not going to move forward. Mm. Um, and, and unfortunately, today in the United States, uh, we've gotten so contentious at times that people won't listen to the other side. And there's generally some value to, to listening to another opinion. And what is a life of greatness to you? Oh, you know, a life of greatness to me, uh, and I don't, don't want this to come across as self-serving, uh, but I have three kids. And for me, it is all about, you know, are your kids going to be happy in life? Mm. Uh, nothing means more to me than, than my kids and my family being happy. You know, all the missions, all the accolades, all of the, none of that matters. The only thing that matters is whether or not you raised a good family. And, you know, my time in the military, I would see, you know, privates and seamen recruits who were married with a couple of kids. Let me tell you, those men and women were just as courageous, just as patriotic, 
in my in my sense, just as heroic as anybody that went on a bin Laden raid or anybody that captured a Saddam Hussein or did anything else. You know, heroism is is taking care of your family when things are tough. And I would tell you, in life, to me, that's really all that matters. William H. McRaven, you are one of the most inspirational people I think I have ever met. Thank you for the beautiful conversation today. That was my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Stay connected by following A Life of Greatness on Instagram at A Life of Greatness Podcast. For more information and to watch videos on this and other episodes, head to sarahgrimberg.com. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate and review A Life of Greatness on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. A Life of Greatness is a Podcast One Australia production. Executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tottiel for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au.